This podcast may not be suitable for work or for at home with small children. Listen with caution. I didn't know the voice I heard wasn't really there. It started out soft and eventually grew louder over time to where I could no longer ignore it. It began to take over my life. Imagine having difficulty distinguishing reality from what is occurring inside your head. Imagine not knowing and then becoming paranoid over what the hallucinations are telling you. It is often something incomprehensible for most people and misunderstood. Hi, and welcome back to The Brain Grave. I'm your host, Crystal Epley, and today we're diving into a chronic brain disorder called schizophrenia. If you listened to last week's episode on the unfortunate murder of Dimebag Daryl Abbott, Nathan Bray, Aaron Hawk, and Jeff Thompson, we talked about the murderer, Nathan Gale, having been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia while in the military. Today, we are going to go into more detail about schizophrenia, including symptoms, different types, and treatment options. Disclaimer, this podcast cannot and will not give medical advice at any time. So, what is schizophrenia? Schizophrenia is defined by the American Psychiatric Association as a chronic brain disorder that affects less than 1% of the American population. When schizophrenia is considered active, some symptoms can include disorganized speech, difficulty thinking, hallucinations, and delusions. Treatment for schizophrenia can help improve quality of life and decrease the chances of symptoms reoccurring. The American Psychiatric Association also provides a comprehensive volume entitled Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders for clinicians to, ha- to utilize to help improve with treatment and diagnosis of persons living with mental illnesses. In the future, I'll refer to this as the DSM-5 as that's the current edition. Schizophrenia affects approximately 1 in 300 people or 25 million people worldwide. At least 60% of people living with psychosis do not receive specialty mental health services that they need in order to be successful with treatment. And with effective treatment options being available, access to mental health care you know, continues to be a challenge, especially in the United States, mostly due to access. So while schizophrenia is not as common as other mental health disorders, it really is important to note the significant impairment in personal, family, social, occupation, and educational areas of life that are really often heavily impacted by this illness. Schizophrenia is incredibly complex, and it is certainly not a one-size-fits-all disease, which most diseases aren't, to be fair. Uh, It is the unfortunate truth, though, that often people living with schizophrenia are victims of human rights violations, discrimination, and social stigma. The rate of suicide in people with schizophrenia is four times higher than the general population in the age group 18 to 24 years, with approximately 5% completing suicide over their lifetime. It is suggested that treatment decreases the risk of suicide, as a randomized clinical trial comparing clozapine with olanzapine, which are both antipsychotic medications, in patients with schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder revealed less suicide attempts with clozapine. I will link that study from the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, in the episode link on thebraingrave.com. There are a lot of misconceptions about what schizophrenia is, so hopefully today we can discuss those and demystify myths. We are here trying to break these stigmas and eliminate the fear of seeking treatment, after all. It is important to know that there is currently no cure for schizophrenia, but that doesn't mean that there isn't hope. Research is being led for safer treatment and better understanding of the brain to improve treatment options. So let's talk about some of the symptoms. Schizophrenia, like many of the other mental health disorders we'll cover here at the brain grave, have several symptom subtypes in which people may or may not have symptoms. Remember, I don't work in in psychiatry. I just happen to have a passion for educating. 
I'm also learning myself, so please feel free to correct me should I be incorrect with any of this. The first section that we'll talk about today is the positive symptoms. Positive symptoms mean symptoms that are abnormally present, um, so they really shouldn't be there, such as hallucinations, um, paranoia or delusions, and distorted beliefs. Their senses may be heightened and or distorted, which can lead to losing their sense of reality. Hallucinations, these are changes in the perception of your senses, visual, auditory, somatic, olfactory like smell, or gustatory like taste, with auditory being the most common form of hallucinations reported in people with schizophrenia. It is estimated that 40 to 80% of people with schizophrenia experience auditory hallucinations. Delusions, uh, which are the thoughts or, um, or beliefs that are not supported by facts. The most common type of delusions is typically paranoid or persecutory, where they believe that they're being watched or that someone is out to get them or cause harm. Um, and sometimes, you know, these can be the ones that lead to, to injury um, or self-harm. But there's also other types of delusions. So erotomatic is when someone believes that another person, usually someone of, of important status or fame, uh, is in love with them. And so sometimes these people may be uh, stalking someone. Um, grandiose delusions occur when someone has sort of an exaggerated sense of entitlement, power, or identity. They often think they have an immense talent or have done something miraculous. And jealous delusions are when they feel their significant other has done something to hurt them, usually been unfaithful or lied to them. Somatic delusions believe they have a physical defect or medical problem that no one can identify. And then mixed delusions are persons suffering from two or more of the delusions I just mentioned. Negative symptoms mean symptoms that are not present, that is considered abnormal, that really should be there. So for example, kind of this, the loss of willpower, um, apathy, so kind of the ability to show emotion, uh, the ability to express the emotions, the find pleasure, initiate and carry out tasks. They may have reduced speaking, slow movements, difficulty functioning at a normal capacity. Disorganized symptoms include difficulty with rational thinking, confusion or disorganized speech. I'd like to sit on the basket and the wheels on the bus go round, found, hound, ground. Or bizarre behavior like repeating the same word or behavior repeatedly, dressing inappropriate for the weather. They can also have neurological symptoms that can manifest with schizophrenia including motor coordination, difficulties, and right-left confusion. These symptoms are not the same as medication-related like adverse effects that we'll talk about later. These negative or positive symptoms can also become so severe where they do not move much at all or respond much versus the complete opposite in the way of excitement and excessive movement. Catatonia is a term used for this, and I'm not sure how common uh, catatonia catatonic excitement is with excessive movement, um, but catatonia, um, the typical catatonia is where people have really slow movements or they really are not responsive. And then the excitement is where they have kind of excessive movement. Often people with schizophrenia have anosognosia, which means an inability to recognize deficit or lack of insight. They do not know they have the illness, which makes uh, treatment difficult at times as they believe themselves to be perfectly fine. This lack of insight can also complicate cognitive symptoms associated with schizophrenia, including the difficult, difficulty processing information needed to make decisions, difficulty with focusing, short-term memory, and retention. These symptoms for, for some can interfere with the inability to learn, 
remember their own appointments or pay bills, which then requires more assistance for the person living with schizophrenia to live safely. It is thought that schizophrenia has some hereditary components, environmental and psychosocial factors. It is also thought that going back to early childhood and reviewing their development may also provide clues about their risk of schizophrenia. Onset of symptoms can occur in adolescents, which tends to be earlier in males, or in their 30s. Delusions and hallucinations occur in most persons diagnosed with schizophrenia. Studies related to heritability on families with a persons living with schizophrenia showed increased risk for schizophrenia. Heritability is used as a measurement, so kind of statistics, a class that some of us really struggled with, like myself, that utilizes people's difference in their genetics to estimate the influence of a specific trait. Several studies show overall that schizophrenia is incredibly complex and that it is influenced by both genetics and environmental factors. What we have found over the years with research regarding schizophrenia is that the data is variable, meaning that some of the onset for people with schizophrenia is insidious, so it's kind of like a slow onset, while others are really abrupt. There have been several other risk factors associated with schizophrenia, including OB complications, so birth, uh, which seems to later increase their risk kind of two times, late winter and early spring births with the suggestion of, of those with mothers exposed to the flu, advanced paternal age, so if the mother was older at the time of conception, living in urban areas, some kinds of inflammation, and then actual neurotransmitters. Frontal lobe abnormalities and excess dopamine is also hypothesized to contribute to schizophrenia. Frontal lobe abnormalities, especially with the prefrontal cortex, can cause executive dysfunction. The prefrontal cortex is vital to memory, control, and impacts cognitive functions, including impulse, inhibition, and attention. It is part of executive dysfunction and the ability to make sound decisions. It was thought for the longest time that dopamine was the main issue with schizophrenia and that antipsychotic medications block the dopaminergic D2 receptor. However, even with these medications, people still exhibit the positive symptoms like hallucinations and delusions. So it's likely that several neurotransmitters are involved and, and not just, you know, dopamine. Overall, medicine had the right thought, but, I, but they think the D1 receptor is affected more in the prefrontal cortex and decreased amounts of dopamine, which is why the medicine doesn't always work. So let's talk a little bit about neurotransmitters. Glutamate is the major excitatory neurotransmitter. And the working hypothesis is that it's not working properly, which also leads to some of the symptoms. There's also evidence of this by postmortem studies. Um, so autopsies, measuring the levels of the receptor agonist and antagonists, antagonists in people with schizophrenia. GABA is the major inhibitory neurotransmitter, or as I actually like to call it, the calm the hell down neurotransmitter. It's important for regulation of the prefrontal cortex. Postmortem studies of people with schizophrenia have also shown decreased levels of glutamic acid decarboxylase, which is typically contained in GABA neurotransmitters. Discovering the dysfunction in these neurotransmitters may help in the future to create treatments that are more effective and streamlined for treatment of schizophrenia. Diagnosis of schizophrenia does not always occur right away. There is no single lab or imaging test that can result in a diagnosis of schizophrenia, and at times can be a diagnosis of exclusion. Rather than using these types of tools, a provider must first exclude several other diagnoses that could be causing the behavioral disturbances before diagnosing schizophrenia. This is important because there are other conditions that can mimic the symptoms associated with schizophrenia. For example, 
If a patient presents to the ED hallucinating with no other known history of the negative, positive, or disorganized symptoms, they may need to invest other co- investigate other causes, such as other psychiatric disorders, seizures, brain tumors or abnormalities, infections, or illicit drug use. A full assessment will need to occur and may need to include family and or caregivers providing information to make a diagnosis. A full assessment of their, of their overall physical health will also need to be evaluated at this time. It's really important to look at the big picture when you're diagnosing someone with a mental health disorder. The DSM-5 criteria for diagnosing schizophrenia requires specific symptoms pers- to persist for a period that significantly affects their quality of life. They also require specifying if people exhibit catatonia and the severity of their other symptoms. Differential diagnoses are also important to consider when looking at schizophrenia, as some people may not meet all the criteria. For example, people living with schizophreniform disorder meet all the criteria for actual schizophrenia except for the duration of their symptoms because it's less than six months. 20 to 40% of people living with schizophrenia exhibit significant improvement in the five to six years following diagnosis and receiving treatment, though this outcome is highly dependent on adherence to the treatment regimen. So how do we do that? I mean, the goal of any treatment is to minimize symptoms without intolerable adverse effects. And the same is true for schizophrenia. If the treatment side effects are less bearable than the disorder itself, it reduces the likelihood of someone actually following the treatment plan. And that makes sense. Who wants to take a medication that's going to make them absolutely miserable? Um, You know, I work in neurology. And so, you know, some of the medications make people absolutely zombie-ish. And there is a fine balance to make people feel like themselves, but also have a relief of the symptoms we're trying to treat. So for people living with schizophrenia, to be successful, they need a multidisciplinary team. And that should probably include, you know, a mental health provider, a psychiatrist, or a psychiatric nurse practitioner, or um, PA, a psychologist, therapist, a caseworker, and most likely family or caregiver that's going to help them achieve their goals and be successful. When people are initially diagnosed with schizophrenia, they are most likely in an acute psychotic episode. Thus, priority of stabilizing their psychosis is key at that time. So at that time, antipsychotic medications are likely to be initiated. There are several antipsychotic medications, and for simplification today, we're just going to break them into first generation and second generation. Simply put, first generation antipsychotics tend to have a higher risk of side effects overall than second generation. Uh, And that makes sense if you think about it, right? Over time, we have gotten better with medications. We have found ways to get the same result, if not better, um, with less overall adverse effects. Um, At least that's our hope, uh, that people will do better um, with less side effects and get um, the better results. Um, And so that's, I mean, that's kind of the goal to keep coming out with medications that work even better um, and, uh, and, and cause less harm. The caveat to that, though, is when choosing a medication for a patient, and this is really for anyone, you really have to take into consideration the route of the administ- the, med- the route of the medication, the likelihood of adherence, the pharmacon the pharmacokinetics, the side effects, and the cost of the medication. At the end of the day, you want to make sure that they're safe and successful. Clozapine, uh, the medication I discussed earlier, is the only exception to the rule. It's a second-generation antipsychotic that is used for treatment-resistant schizophrenia and has extremely specific treatment guidelines. 
I, I like to think of it as like pulling out the big guns for treatment, given the potential adverse effects and overall side effect profile. But there are reasons why we use certain medications. And, you know, sometimes there are longer acting antipsychotics that patients would do better on because it's given, you know, maybe once a week or every two weeks or once a month um, because these patients have a hard time with taking medications every day. When you're looking at adherence uh, and compliance and whether or not they are able to take their medication or if they need help with administration, you know, looking at that whole picture and really knowing that patient um, and their family and their actual situation, I think is imperative to them being successful. Um, sure, we can write prescriptions. You know, I can I can send a prescription out and and um, and just say we'll see you later. But the key to these people being successful, to my patient population being successful, is really taking the time to understand what's going to work best for them. So the next kind of thing I wanted to talk about was what does it feel like? And I don't have schizophrenia, so I, I don't personally know what it feels like, but I, I wanted to, you know, find things on online and through research um, of people that have been able to articulate how they feel. And I actually found several kind of um, excerpts that talked about their experience. Um, so I'm going to kind, of, kind of read some of these for you. I stumbled upon this article on Psych Central entitled, A Look Inside the Mind of Schizophrenia, and it included a few quotes from people living with schizophrenia. One person described their experience as, social situations were almost impossible to manage. I always came across as aloof, anxious, nervous, or just plain weird, picking up on inane snippets of conversation and asking people to repeat themselves and tell me what they were referring to. And another describing it as, colors seem to be brighter now, almost as if they are luminous paintings. I'm not sure if things are solid until I touch them. Another woman, Ellen R. Sachs, a professor of law, psychology, behavioral sciences, and psychiatry, described her own jaunt with schizophrenia in her, in her own memoir, including this quote. But explaining what I've come to call disorganization is a different challenge altogether. Consciousness gradually loses its coherence. One center gives way. The center cannot hold. The me becomes a haze. And the solid center from which one experiences reality breaks up like a bad radio signal. I will include the link to this article on thebraingrave.com for all of you to read if you're interested. About six months ago, I discovered a YouTube channel called Living Well with Schizophrenia. It's run by Lauren, who lives with schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. Her channel is a wonderful resource as she shares her own journey and then also discusses breaking the stigma, knowing the warning signs, and helping people to get help. Um, so I've actually kind of went through a lot of her videos and I think, um, I think it's wonderful to kind of be able to have uh, someone who's able to, to really talk about um, what it's really like to live with schizophrenia. Uh, there was also a TED Talk uh, TEDx talk by a woman named Cecilia Mitko that I also found really uplifting because throughout the speech she said I have schizophrenia and never said I am schizophrenic, indicating that she may have schizophrenia, but she's also Cecilia, an astronomer, researcher, author, mental health activist, and now TEDx talk speaker. To me, there is a striking difference between the two and one that I hope is resounding to all of you. So let's talk about stigma and bias. What is stigma? 
So stigma is when a group or person is labeled or categorized in a way that separates them from most of society and as a result often has negative consequences that ensue. Persons living with severe mental illnesses are less likely to be given job opportunities, to be given housing opportunities, access to health care, which are all associated with significant decrease in quality of life. This often complicates their illness and can lead to isolation, exacerbation of illness, and decrease in further social support. Does stigma come from society alone? While it is often that yes, that is the case, the truth is that it tends to affect the individual with how they feel about themselves, which is like internalized stigma. So stigma that includes social rejection and bullying that facilitates kind of the discrimination. So that's kind of this interpersonal stigma. And then the decreased opportunities for housing and employment and, and even like the healthcare, which is institutional stigma. So they're, it's, it's multifaceted. So it's not just, oh, that person has a mental health disorder. It's kind of the entire 360 all the way around. The person feels that way about themselves. And then it comes all the way back to the entire system having a stigma and bias. Another important component to stigma is misinformation. Mass media plays a significant role in how mental health information is received and perceived, and it is likely going to play a pivotal role in shaping the way society as a whole views mental health. This also includes the entertainment industry, in which persons with severe mental illnesses are often viewed as reckless and dangerous. On the flip side, the entertainment industry also has the possibility to introduce characters with, with mental illness accurately, helping to promote awareness to the public. We can also look at promoting mental health awareness to children and adolescents in the classroom. This may also help to normalize mental health and get the conversation started. Support for people with schizophrenia is needed lifelong, even if they are re in remission. While antipsychotic medications are first line, they are not always completely effective on their own. And that makes sense as to what we talked about earlier, right? With the neurotransmitters and dopamine and how we're not quite there yet with the medications, right? We, we don't know exactly um, how all of the neurotransmitters are involved. And so I don't think we're all there quite yet. So people with schizophrenia need a structured and consistent approach to their treatment that consists of a routine. The type of resources should include employment resources, family, psychoeducational intervention, where if a family is involved, there's education to help prevent relapse of psychosis, promote medication adherence, reduce stress, promote autonomy, autonomy and support and have a supportive environment, social skills and employment training and cognitive behavior therapy. Aside from that education, there can also be problem solving family therapy where the ability to identify interactions, behaviors and situations that may cause distress and how to avoid those and how to better like how to avoid some and how to better manage the ones that are inevitable. All these types of therapies can be repeated and targeted specifically for the person living with schizophrenia or for certain situations they may be experiencing with their family. The goal in the end is for them to be successful and be able to be as autonomous in their everyday life as possible. So bring grave people. What has been your experience with mental health? Do you or someone you love struggle with an illness? Are you curious about mental health in general and want to know more? Visit us at thebraingrave.com for resources on this episode and under the Get Loud tab. So until next week, remember, the time to be silent is gone. Get loud, my friends. Thanks for listening.